I'm going to let my wife just kind of start and tell a little bit about what um, she saw. This is my wife, Karen, by the way, if you don't know her. She spends a lot of time taking care of kids in the back on Sunday morning. So The, the short people are a little more my speed. Um, Sean, you can go ahead and start that video. All right, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where we're at. Um, yep, this is arriving in Nairobi. Um, we spent a lot of time traveling. We spent the first week at the Student Center with the graduating high school seniors. We spent the rest of the time, um, we ended up in nine different, we would call them states, um, because most of our children come from various locations throughout the entire um, land of Kenya because one of the um, goals of this ministry is to unify the tribes. Um, and in Kenya, it is a big deal what tribe you come from. Um, in the slums of Mathari, which most of you are familiar with, and we'll see pictures in just a minute. That's Baylin. There we go. Um, some of these people have to move after They've lived in one of those lovely little shacks for multiple years because too many of the other tribe ends up kind of moving in and it becomes much more dangerous for them. So um, that's a big thing. So we visited quite a few different towns and villages and this slum just to see the different kids and make connections because um, in Kenya, relationships and honor are a big deal. You don't have money to give, so the honoring of the other person is very important. So the fact that we came and showed up, that we attended a church service there, gives them value with their neighbors. So that was important to them. A lot of this poor gentleman, Peter, who drove us everywhere, was lifting that luggage up and down, up and down. That's the student center. That is the first almost finished building um, where Andrew and Stephanie will be living eventually. The bottom level of all of these places That's are That's my livable. African daughter, by the way. That's Vivian. Because he needs another daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a finished, or an almost finished apartment. It needs another coat of paint. But this is the student center, and this is what we envision that you guys have been praying for years and years for. This is the not finished part. <laughs> um, that's the room we met in that eventually will have windows and walls and house students. This is the group of students. We had 19 of the seniors and quite a few alumni show up. We graduated, well, this year's Form 4 Leavers, there were 25. Two of them didn't take the graduating test for um, personal reasons, um, and they will be taking another year of high school because that last test determines everything for their adult future. Um, but out of the 23 that took the test, two of them did not do as well as they would have liked, and they will be retaking another year of high school, hopefully to score higher. Out of the 22 that did, they scored in the top 17% in Kenya, which means they um, get to go to university. They, um, depending on which university and which classes are available, they will get to do um, the major that they 
wanted to do, and the majority of them, the funds will be there to pay for university for them. There are a few that that didn't work out for. This is one of them, Erica. She's the gal that we, um, as a family, have been writing to for six, seven years. Um, she is was sponsored by Toffee through high school, but we found out last year when we went that she um, was not at university because she could that's, not afford that's to That's the go. graduating class there that was in that picture. Um, so she, there, there are a few kids that um, the earlier sponsors are paying for their college education, which is less than $1,000 a year, way different from here. Um, so we had quite a few of them, well, three or four of the alumni that were giving testimony to the younger kids. They, once they get out of high school, we found that someone tells them in high school what to wear and when to eat and what to study and when to sleep and where to be all the time. So when they get out of high school, it's like they can't make decisions for themselves. Because for the majority of them, their high school education is at a boarding school. So their whole schedule is set because boarding school, they, they live there where they go to school. So this gap year, one of the other things we didn't realize how valuable it was going to be is they are going to get trained in how to make basic decisions. There's a couple of them that we found, there was Flora. There's a couple of them that we found out weren't um, able to go, okay, I have to stop. This is Sheila. Sheila lives in Andrews Village. It was maybe a three-hour drive on a big bus for us. She did not come to camp that week of camp. She did graduate. She did very well. She did not have $3 for the bus fare to get from her village to camp for the week. And as Karen was talking about, they don't, people think for them and tell them what to do for their, all their high school. So she didn't, it didn't even cross her mind to call Andrew and say, hey, I don't have bus fare. And they don't feel valuable. So she missed out on the week of camp and the graduating dinner and all of that stuff because she didn't have $3. Um, we stopped at the village. Um, Andrew gave her $3. She is now at the student center and will be spending the next nine months at the GAP program. So that got solved. Um, I, know, I knew you had needed to see those, so I just <laughs> threw in all the safari stuff. So, But we wanted to explain something about the safari. It's really kind of a cool... Um, tie into, you know, we as missionaries, and I felt kind of guilty about going um, on safari while we're over there because I would have rather spent another week with the students at the center and just hanging out with them because that was the highlight of my trip. But we, as we were talking with um, others, I discovered that part of the reason why we do this safari is Kenya is what I would refer to as an honor-shame culture. And so it's a very big deal to, to, um, to honor somebody. And if they offer you something, it's a very big deal to make sure that you kind of graciously accept that, that gift. And this group that runs this safari is very much tied into the, the Maasai tribe. And we have helped students from the Maasai tribe go to high school and taking care of their students. And so... As a way to honor us, they offer us this safari at like 75% off. Um, and for, so for us to not accept that and not go would be dishonoring to them 
So, so I felt kind of guilty that I got to honor them and enjoy such an amazing time with, at Safari. But that kid that you saw there, that's Denson, and his tribe is in the, the Mara, the, the conservancy where you do this safari. And so one of the afternoons, we get to drive over to his tribe. We met him, we met his, uh, met with him, met his um, uncle and his family and um, his grandma. And um, it was just a special, they invite us into their mud hut, which is literally built out of- It's cow poop, it's not uh, Yeah, it's dung, it's, um, <laughs> but anyway. Um, but it was just such a special time to, to be with their family because their family was so welcoming and they have nothing, and, but they were so welcoming. And, and I gotta tell you, going over there every year, the Redeemer Church has been doing this every year for the last seven years. And the relationships they have built with these people is just incredible. Um, these people understand how much um, financially it just blows them away how much we would spend to go be with them. And one of the kids asked me one day, he said, why do you spend this money to come here? When there's plenty of people who don't know Jesus in America, I'm guessing, so they, you could, you know, why don't you do mission there? And, um, and, and several, he had asked this of three of us, and so they, the couple other people were given the, the kind of the standard answer of, um, you know, well, we just, we, you know, you guys need the, the help, and we love Andrew and Stephanie and what they're doing and all this kind of stuff, and and he just, I could tell he wasn't terribly satisfied by that answer. And I said, I'll tell you what my answer is. God told me to be here. <laughs> God put it on my wife and my, my heart and my wife's heart that this is where we needed to be and this is what we needed to be doing with our time and resources. And he said, I understand that. That makes sense to me. And I said, because, you know, it does... What's amazing to me is not that we are here to help you, but what's amazing to me is that blessing that it was to be able to be here with you and see what God is doing in your life and see how God is moving in Kenya. That, that was so powerful for me to get to see what he was doing in the lives of these students that we spent a week with. In business years ago, I... I I was told this, this uh, statement that, that I've always found to be true. You're perfectly organized to get the results you're getting. So whatever you're organized to do, whatever you're seeing in your organization, even in this church, whatever we see actively working out of, out of this church, we're perfectly organized to produce that. And so if you're not getting what the results that you want, you have to change the way you're doing what you're doing to get a different result. So I went, so as I'm watching what's going on and I'm hearing some of the stories, that thought comes to mind as I'm hearing some stories of these kids in, when we were at the, um, in the Mathari Valley at Pastor Ezekiel's church, several of our students shared their story and what's going on. And these, um, three of these kids were, um, alumni, they're graduates, they're in university or they're out of university, Flora was one of them. 
And our desire as One Life Africa Bridge Ministries and, and as a church as we support this ministry because we're about people making disciples and then those disciples going and making disciples, right? And the, as these students told the stories of what was going on, Andrew just told them, share what's, what God is doing in your life. Kid after kid after kid, even some of the high schoolers, started sharing the ministries that they had started on their own or with other students to disciple other students. Or to go back into the Mathari Valley and feed children, women and children in that valley because they call, just felt the need to go there and do that. And I thought, it's working. <laughs> the ministry of One Life Africa is doing what we set out to do. It's raising up godly young men and women as leaders who are taking their leadership role seriously and going back into their communities and raising up new disciples. And um, that was just super powerful to me and so cool to, to be able to do that, to hear their stories. So. so a couple more things. As a mama, one of the things that I am so pleased about, um, besides the education, which is going to change things, like David said, um, is most of these kids, it is not safe where they live. You know, we had that, I heard while we were gone, there were um, some murders and everyone in my house, you know, no, the kids weren't allowed to go outside and we were calling everybody and leaving all the lights on and locking everything up. And it was scary and that, we are not used to that. And these guys, they don't have a door to shut that keeps people out. Um, they don't have lights to turn on. They live like this, and it's no big deal. Just listening, um, one of the assignments we had in our small groups was to give our testimony or our story. And what they shared with no emotion, this is just normal and regular. You don't eat pretty regularly. You know what it's like to go to bed hungry and to try and do school on an empty stomach. You know what it's like to not sleep because it's not safe where you live. So even if even beyond the education and the bright future that we're encouraging, at least this group of kids, the 100 to 200 or so that you guys are helping support through One Life Africa, have a door that locks and a way to be safe and someone to call or to um, help them. Andrew and Stephanie both um, help solve problems in families and in communities. Um, for these kids, so they have someone um, that will speak for them. Yeah, one of the other exercises we did while we were there, the, the, the week with these kids is the camp is a, a time of discipling them and, and training them in the Word of God, but it's also training them to share their story and, and training them to become leaders. And so we started out the week with us teaching small groups. And by the end of the week, the students that we were with were teaching the small group. So we had transferred the leadership over to them. We modeled what it looked like, and then we transferred it over to them and let them start to lead the groups. And by the end of the week, we were, we were doing, um, we had put together um, kind of a poster board of their stories. And um, one of them that was, was just super powerful, the way that he laid it out, he laid it out like a book. And, and you know, drew this picture of a book, and he drew the kind of the, the pages of his story up to that point. 
and what was cool was in his, as he began to see the power of this story and what was going on, his picture showed a whole bunch of blank pages at the back end of the book. And, and the comment that he made was, God's not done with my story yet. And guys, these, these kids, we hear their stories. When Flora was here, you guys got to hear Flora's story. Flora's story is amazing. And it is life-changing to listen to what God did and is doing through her life. And the majority of these students don't think that their story matters. And so when we would, at the beginning of the week, they just were kind of like not sure what to say. By the end of the week, when we started talking to them the power of the story of God in your life and sharing with them basically through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, it's just a bunch of stories of how God is moving in people's lives. Your story is just as powerful. And they started to share their story and hear other students share their story, and they became encouraged both in that their story mattered to God because they mattered to God, but that their story mattered to me and that their story mattered to the other students that were in that room and because they were moved by the stories of the other students. Some of those students they know and some of them they don't know, but a lot of times they didn't even know their friend's story because they didn't. So it was just so encouraging by the end of the week for them to hear that God sees them as valuable and that he wants them to see each other as valuable and he wants them to share his message and that's basically what they learned to do, and they learned to do that through a small group setting. And, and um, so it was just powerful, powerful week. I'd, I could spend a lot more time there. I could spend the whole entire service telling you about stories. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, so we want to invite you to just continue. We'd be happy to share more with you, but, but we want to just invite you to continue to pray for what's going on over there in Africa. God is using Andrew and Stephanie and the Ministry of One Life Africa to, um, to change Kenya one student at a time, which is what the, the dream has always been. And so it is a super powerful thing to watch God work. So let's pray. Father God, thanks again for just uh, the amazing work you're doing. Thanks for the opportunity to share about that work and to share about your power and, and uh, might and majesty in the in the world and so we just uh, thank you for your your life jesus and for giving it to us that we might uh, be part of your story in jesus name amen this morning we're going to be in ezekiel chapter four so joel's been working his way through the book of romans and uh and then uh, we've had some breaks for christmas and we'll have another one at easter uh but uh, joel's working through romans i'm working through ezekiel you'll get uh, these books in usually four to six week chunks where we'll bounce back and forth between the two of them and uh, what's really interesting is Joel finished in Romans chapter, chapter 5 last week and looking at the great exchange that takes place when we come to follow Jesus as Lord, that there's this, uh, this, this great exchange where we once were sinners and God has made us saints. We were once in Adam and now we're in Christ. There's this amazing exchange that Jesus has paid for and bought and brought about in our lives. Um, and we're going to see actually that that's something that God has been working on um, all along, Ezekiel chapter 4, some uh, six or seven hundred years before Christ, the same thing is taking place. 
Um, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Ezekiel chapter 4. And, and as we look at this, what I want you to consider is, is uh, you know, there's a question, why did Jesus have to die? Wouldn't it make more sense for God to just forgive sin? Why couldn't he just say, I forgive you? Why did Jesus have to die? But uh, it's interesting, Linux makes a couple of uh, important observations. One, the question of, of why couldn't God just forgive? Just forgiving doesn't make sense. It ignores the fact that there's a cost involved with sin. Right, so if I steal $500 from your wallet, you can forgive me, but that means you've lost $500. Um, there's, there's sin has a cost associated with it, and somebody has to pay it. Uh, the second one is that justice on earth is not perfect, but the summing up of all things in Christ means that final justice will be served. Uh, the other thing there is that there's rational, it's rational to believe that, that this is true, that there is a God, that He has dealt with sin, that He does exist, and I would go even further than that to say that He loves you. Uh, he loves you enough to come here and reveal Himself. But the special revelation of Christ, Jesus showing up and revealing, God revealing Himself as a person, uh, you don't have to ditch logic in order to have Christian faith. Um, and, and then we see that, that God loves us, He's revealed Himself to us, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate expression uh, of God and His love for us. Uh, and I want to add one more thing, and it's what the passage is going to really show us today, uh, is that not only did sin have a cost, uh, but there was a great exchange that needed to take place in our, in our nature. In Ezekiel chapter 4, we're going to see the word iniquity used six times. Uh, now, the word iniquity means to be uh, twisted or bent, irritated or confused. Uh, and it's talking about our nature. It carries the idea of a broken nature that you and I, our default uh, way we enter this world, humanity, the way we enter this world, is that there's, there's a twisting, a bending, an irritation or confusion that's taken place within our souls, within our nature. That we don't, we don't arrive here ready, but we arrive here bent and broken. And this iniquity has a cost for it. So why, you know, if you look at why did Jesus die, or as Dawkins said it, why did Jesus get himself tortured and killed? Uh, Jesus sacrificed himself not just to pay for sin, to bring about final justice, to prove his existence and to reveal himself, but even more, he gave his life to renew ours, to straighten the twisted and bent, to remake the irritated and confused state of being we know all too well. If you've lived a life apart from Christ, you know what it is uh, to, to be irritated, to be bent, to be confused, that your general approach to life is it's tweaked, it's off. Now, if you've followed Christ for a while, you also know that He brings about a new way of life, a new way of thinking, a straightening, a, a remaking of you and your nature. He brings about this process of conforming you to the image of His Son. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 4, so Ezekiel, he's a prophet to the, the nation of Judah. He's, he's in exile. Uh, he's in a little tiny town in Babylon. And uh, God is using him to reveal things that are to come. And uh, in Ezekiel chapter 4, we're going to see the, the historical prediction of the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. Uh, this is maybe six or seven years before uh, the fall actually takes place that, that God is speaking to Ezekiel. It's just a short time before uh, Jerusalem will fall to the Babylonians. Um, and, and even more, what we're going to see here is we see a picture of Christ forgiving, revealing, bringing justice, and His regenerating work through His death, burial, and resurrection. You're going to see a substitutionary sacrifice uh, that is a picture of Jesus in this passage. Uh, so as we talk about the Bible, Jesus is its grand subject. And what I want to do is I want to show you Jesus in Ezekiel chapter 4. 
So if you'll open up, uh, if you're not there already, we'll read, uh, kind of take this a little chunk at a time. We'll go one through, th- one through three here at first. It says, Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick, place it before you, and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it, build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pitch camps, place battering rams against it all around. Then get yourself an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So there's some, some, some language here that uh, obviously Jerusalem isn't actually a brick. Um, and, and, and there's, there's some, uh, some imagery that's taking place here. So you look at Jerusalem and it's a brick. It's, it's soft and conquerable. He's able to inscribe on it. Uh, the ramp would be a siege tower that Babylonians, the Babylonians would use to take a city, uh, it, part, of, part of conquering the wall. The camp, there's lots of soldiers. There's an unstoppable force that's coming. Battering rams, the gates will come down. Any false sense of security that the, that the people of Judah, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have, it's going to be done away with. And then the iron plate, iron plate is, the, is the strength of the coming army. This is this going to be an, impossible to escape. And what we see in this is that, so we have the siege of Jerusalem predicted, but the inevitable consequences of iniquity is what you're really seeing here. The the nation of of Israel and of Judah, they had had split, and what they had done time and time again was was stiff-arm God and His ways. Time and time again, they had turned to the world and the created thing for security and comfort and uh, meaning and pride and all those different things. They had turned not to God for those things, but to the world around them. They had looked to the culture surrounding them, to the, to the religion surrounding them, to the way of thinking, the worldview around them. They looked to that rather than to God, and that, that's an embrace of their bent and broken understanding of life. Rather than pushing away their bent and broken understanding, they embraced it. And when you do that, when you, when you say, I'm not going to go with God on this, but instead I'm going to go with my understanding. Right? The, the original sin within the garden, Satan tempts the people, Adam and Eve, and he says, if you'll eat this, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, if you do this, you're going to enter the process of deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. And that is the bent and broken, twisted nature, the iniquity of mankind. That is our iniquity, that we are made uh, fallen in a state where we say, I will be the decider of right and wrong. Okay, And what's happened within the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel, is the people have embraced that mindset, that way of living. They have said, I will embrace the fact that I am the decider. Not God, me. And when we do that, there's inevitable consequences. When, when, when you distance yourself from life, you're going to experience a lack of life. That's just the way that it works. And that's what you do when you embrace your iniquity. When you say, I'm the decider and I will do this my way, and you distance yourself from God, you're setting yourself up to no longer enjoy life to be incapable of being connected, right? Jesus uses the vine and the branches, and if the, if the branch isn't connected, what does it do? It withers away and dies, and it's good for nothing but the fire. And if we disconnect ourselves from God as the decider, the, if He's not the decider, He's not God. If He doesn't have the sway in your life to determine right and wrong, He's not God. 
to you. And so if you do that, which is what the nation of Judah had done, there's consequences. And that's what we see taking place. Ezekiel is telling them this is what's coming. Uh, there's going to be, you, you embrace your iniquity and you're soft and conquerable. Uh, there's going to be a camp, an unstoppable force that's going to come after you if you embrace that way of life. Any sense of security that you have, of any false sense of security that you have, eventually that will be stripped from you. No matter how strong you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how well you match the culture around you, no matter how good you look to people, any false sense of security that you have eventually will be done away with. And the strength that's coming after you, the strength of, of, of embracing your iniquity, your nature apart from God, um, you will not escape the consequences of living apart from God and embracing the idea that you are the decider. Verses 4 through 8, we get a picture of Christ and the heavy cost of iniquity. Verse 4 says, As for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. For I have assigned you a number of days according to the years of their iniquity, 300 and 90 days. Thus, you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So you have to remember, there's the three great kings. You have Saul, David, and Solomon. And then after Solomon, the nation splits, and you've got two kingdoms. One is conquered by the Assyrians in 722. That's, that's Israel. And then Judah is about to be conquered by the Babylonians in 586. And he's describing the consequences of their iniquity of each of these different offshoots of the original nation. When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, verse 6, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned you for 40 days, a day for each year. Then you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm barred and prophesy against it. Now behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to another until you have completed the days of your siege." Now, I read lots of different commentaries and lots of different opinions on what these days mean, 390 and, and 40 years uh, and, and 40. What's, what's, what's clear is that it's not 100% clear exactly how these numbers mesh because different people have different opinions on this. The one that seemed to made the most sense to me, uh, he says, lay on your left side for the iniquity of Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, conquered by the Assyrians in 20, uh, 722 B.C., 390 years from the division of the kingdom when Judah and Israel split, to 541, uh, the captives, that's when the captives were free under the Persian rule in 538 B.C. Uh, after Babylon, Persia comes along, and Cyrus of Persia says you can go back to your land, and 390 works pretty well. Uh, he says, lay on your right side for the iniquity of the southern kingdom, and they're conquered by Babylon in, in 586 B.C., so four, uh, excuse me, 546 B.C. is when the major events of Persia threatening Babylon occur. They don't make it back for a little bit after that, but there's some major events where, where it's clear that Babylon is going to fall. Uh, the numbers, this is a tricky prophecy. Some prophecies you go, bang, got it. Some of them you go, this is a little bit tricky. This is one of those that's tricky. So the numbers aren't perfect, and the understanding of the, of the prophecy is difficult. The complete understanding of that prophecy is difficult. But what is clear is that Ezekiel's binding and laying down is a picture of what Israel will endure, Israel and Judah, for their iniquity. But even more, it's a picture of what Jesus did for the iniquity of all mankind. 
When you look at what he's doing, he's laying on one side for the iniquity and then the other side for the iniquity, and then he's, his arms are barred and he's, he's tied up. This is a picture of what Jesus would do. You have a picture of the substitutionary sacrifice. Now, Ezekiel laying down and doing this isn't going to remove the penalty from the people, but when Jesus lays down and lays down his life and, and bears our sin, it does. When Jesus, when he, was, when he was tied up and his arms were barred and when he went to the cross, he, he bore the full weight of sin, the full weight of iniquity. He revealed himself and his love for us, but, but he, he also bore the full weight of us saying, I will rebel against God and I will be the decider. And there's a great exchange that takes place through the death, burial, and resurrection that this points to, that, that, that Jesus would die and that he would, uh, that he would bear our sin, that He would take our iniquity, the broken state of our understanding, and that He would be raised from the dead. And in that, through His resurrection, us being placed into that, we get a new life. We get a, a new start. He doesn't take a bent and broken thing and straighten it. He actually throws it out and gives us something brand new that's straight. And this is the great exchange that Jesus offers to us, that, that, that He will pay for our sin, that the consequences of, of, of sin will be dealt with. Uh, he reveals to us His great love for us. And He also says, I'm not going to leave you in this broken, busted state, but instead I'm going to make you new. I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to make you new. And then all of a sudden, as you follow Jesus, what takes place is, is, is your mind and your life starts to align with the fact that God has made me new. God has made me brand new. I'm not who I once was, but He's made me a new individual. And you start to see the world through Jesus' eyes. You start to see decision-making not as I'm the decider, but as I have this great loving God who is with me at all times, who I have communion with at all times through His presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will make decisions in life, not on my own and not in my own wisdom, but I'm going to do this with God and in His wisdom. You become someone who stiff-arms God to someone who hugs Him. And this is the transformation of our nature that the gospel allows. Now you may be asking some questions about Ezekiel in the back of your mind. You're going, wait a minute, he laid down for uh, 430 days? Yes, but not all day, okay? Uh, it's an interesting thing. As we go through the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that he'll, he'll lay on his side, and then he'll get up, and he'll go talk to people, and he'll eat some stuff. Uh, but what we have here is an amazing picture of Christ. If you want to... Every chapter of the book of Ezekiel, you can see Jesus if you look. Every chapter of the Bible, you can see Jesus if you look. And what we have in this one is a picture of him paying for our sin, for our iniquity. We have a picture of the great transformation, the great exchange that Jesus Christ offers through the gospel. This is the love of God on full display for us. Verses 9 through 17, we see that, uh, that the life of iniquity yields wasting away. He says, But as for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentil, millet, and spilt, Put them in one vessel and make them into bread for yourself. You shall eat it according to the number of days that you lay on your side, 390 days. For the food which you eat shall be 20 shekels by, by a day by weight, and you shall eat it from time to time. The water you drink shall be the sixth part of a hen by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. You shall eat as a barley cake, having 
baked it in their sight over human dung. Then the Lord said, Thus will be the sons of Israel, thus, thus will the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will banish them. But I said, to, but I said, Ah, oh Lord God, behold, I have never been defiled for my, from my youth until now. I have never eaten uh, what died of itself or what was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I will give you cow's dung in the place of human dung over which you prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I am going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and drink water by measure, uh, and and in horror, because the bread and because bread and water will be scarce, and they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. So in this, we see Ezekiel, he learns the horrors of the coming siege. Uh, He was only going to be allowed to drink about a quart of water and only eat eight ounces of coarse bread a day, and he was to cook it in a manner that was considered unclean by Jewish standards, or mine for that matter. Um, I I don't ever want to barbecue with that. Um, but uh, So the, the human dung would have very much been considered unclean, uh, yet not uncommon within the culture that they lived. Uh, using, using cow dung for fuel is actually probably what you guys used when you were, you were in Africa. Um, it, it was a common fuel of the time. You get into the desert, and there's not a lot of trees to cut down, and, and, uh, and you don't have anything to burn, so that's what you burn. Uh, but Ezekiel, he learns the, the horrors of the coming siege. There's not going to be a lot of food. There's not going to be a lot of water. Uh, this is not going to be a good time. And then he says that I'm going to remove my people and put them in exile, which Ezekiel already was. This was a picture for those still in Jerusalem, really the leadership of the time. He's going to put them in exile, and they're going to eat unclean food. They're going to be removed from their home. They're going to waste away. That last line, he says, they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. And what I want you to get from this is life apart from God is not all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, You look at this and you go, that that is not the life I would want to lead. And for many of us, I don't even know that we can really identify with what's taking place in this passage. You look at this passage and you go, I got plenty of food. I got plenty of water. Nobody's laying siege to what I got. And in some ways, so the, the American version of this is a little different. But what is true of the people of the time that is true of you and I is they had turned to the created thing rather than their creator for, for life. They had, they had turned to themselves for decision-making and truth versus turning to their creator for decision-making and truth. They had embraced their iniquity. Now you might look at our culture around us and you go, man, that is exactly what our culture is doing. They're embracing their iniquity. You hear the phrase, follow your your heart all the time. That is a terrible thing to do. Don't follow your heart. Follow the pages of Scripture. Your heart is deceitful and crooked. Uh, God will give you a new one and remake it as as you align yourself with truth. But don't follow your heart. Uh, You hear people say that we, you, you know, you need to embrace you need to embrace the decisions that people are making surrounding their identity and surrounding their, their sexual orientation. You have to embrace that. If you don't embrace that, there's something wrong with you. What our culture is saying right now is we want to embrace the fact that we are the deciders on a very high level. That's what our culture is saying. And you might think shame on them. 
But the fact of the matter is the church has been just as guilty of this over the years as anybody else. What most people do with their iniquity is they hide it behind us, behind a, behind a, a group of laws and rituals that make them look pretty good. That's what most people do with their iniquity. That's what most religions do with the bent and broken nature that we have. We create some rules, and we, and we put a facade on the broken, and we say, look, I'm pretty good. I'm certainly better at following the rules than that guy. I'm certainly better at following the rules than this world around me. Look how broken and crooked they are. But me, uh, I follow the rules pretty well. And I, it, do, I don't, it doesn't really even matter what religion you turn to or what cult of Christianity you turn to. That's what they do. They try and hide their iniquity underneath some facade. Put layers and layers on it, right? Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs. You, you look good on the outside, but you're just dead on the inside. And that's what most religious people do. They, they look better, but they aren't actually better. And I don't care, you, you, could, you could fill in the blank with Mormonism or Catholicism or you could fill in the blank with, with, with Hinduism or Buddhism or Muslim or any Islam, any of those things. You can fill in the blank. That's what they all do. They say, put on this facade, cover up your broken state, and try and look your best. That is not what the gospel says. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that you have been radically transformed. Uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not say fix yourself up from the outside so that the inside can be okay. Right? What did Jesus, he also said to the Pharisees, you, you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside you leave dirty. And so what he's saying to them is you need to experience something far beyond putting on a facade and looking the part. The experience of the gospel is not try real hard so you can look good to others. The experience of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has transformed me. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, I am not bent and broken anymore. In fact, he has made me new. I do not live in a confused and irritated state of being, but I live in security in line with his truth. And the transformation starts on the inside, and it manifests itself out little by little as we follow Jesus and know Him more closely. See, the answer to iniquity is not, i got to fix myself up. The answer to the fact that I don't know how to live is, is not act like I do. It's Jesus Christ has radically transformed me and He's made me new. I am a new person in Jesus Christ. I am brand new. I am no longer bent and broken and irritated and confused. I have been made new and I am straight and I, and, and I know how to live. This is the truth of the transformation of the gospel. And the great danger within our churches is that we tell ourselves that we have to fix ourselves up and look the part for other people. The great danger within our churches is we say you're not allowed to sit in this seat until you've got to the point where you look like that. When in fact, uh, the, we ourselves need to recognize that it's not my effort that transforms me, it's the power of Christ. And we ourselves need to look at this world around us and not say, hey, go fix yourself up or I won't have anything to do with you. But instead, I need to embrace you 
with the truth of the gospel, that there is this God that loves way bigger and way better than my understanding of any morality. And it's not that morality won't show up, but it'll take time as people learn to follow Christ. Life apart from God isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And those who know God and Jesus Christ know the difference between living with Him and living without Him. If, if you've lived this, you know the difference between when you tried and failed on your own and when you embraced uh, the truth that God lays out in Scripture and lived it. Don't offer a message to people around you. You know, we all have one people that we love and people that we know that... Uh, that embrace the bent and the broken state they live in. And the trick isn't to try and straighten them. The trick isn't to give them some rules. The trick isn't to, to, to try and put them in a box and mold them into what you want them to look like. But the trick is to offer them the transformation of the gospel. You people, uh, everybody, you have somebody that you know, that you love. Don't, don't try and tweak them. Show them Jesus. Give them real transformation. Lord Jesus, I thank you that it is not my self-effort. Uh, the Bible is not a self-help book. Um, this isn't a talk show. Uh, this isn't the latest craze. Jesus, you are not a fad. You are the one true God who has revealed himself to us. You made yourself a person. You made yourself identifiable to us. And as you made yourself identifiable to us, you, you showed us how much you love us. You looked at your children and you saw us bent and broken. You saw us irritated and confused. You saw us... Uh, experiencing what comes about when we're far from you. And you didn't look at that and say, see you later, but you looked at that and you came to us. You revealed yourself to us and you showed us your love by going to the cross. You showed us your love through someone like Ezekiel in, in painting a picture of what you would do that you would be bound, that you would be broken, that you would lay down your life for us. And so, God, I pray that we may know you for who you truly are, this transformational God. I also pray that we would, we would share you as that. I don't want to know you as a rule keeper. You have morality. There's no question about that. But you bring about morality through relationship with you. And so I pray that the Christians in the United States would not be known as the moral elite finger-pointing people, but they would be known as people who have been transformed and loved. That we wouldn't be known as uh, nasty posts on Facebook, and then we wouldn't be known as uh, individuals who don't know how, a, how to have a conversation with somebody because we're so far removed from reality, but that we would be people who know the truth of reality, that Apart from you, we're bent, we're broken, we're irritated and we're confused, and we're in need of love. We're in need 
We're in need of your arms around us. And you have a church here to be that for you. May we be known for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.